Welcome to Getting to the Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with the representative of the first district of Baltimore City Council. Please welcome council member Zeke Cohen. Welcome to the podcast. Rob, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Uh, it's always interesting to do the actual pre-interview talk <laughs> and sound like, hey, you know how it is, man. But And then turn on the radio guy voice. It's it's a quick shift. It's a quick shift. You got, you got a good radio voice, man. That's, uh, that's, that's impressive. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. Um, so let's, let's get the vital stats. Cause I think like, I think oftentimes like here people know of someone, they know someone's name, but I like to start off with those vital stats. What's your background and what compelled you to run for office here? And, um, what's the work of a city council member? Yeah. Um, so I'm a teacher by training. Um, so I taught in West Baltimore in Sintown, Winchester. And then I taught in Curtis Bay in South Baltimore. And I think for me as an educator, um, you know, pretty early on, I was exposed to just the profound disparities within our education system, right? Like I think about, you know, I grew up in Western Massachusetts. I went to public school. Um, but you know, the, the building I was in was great. The, you know, they had 20 or less people in a class, I, you know, it was sort of a middle-class, um, town and it, you know, got me to where I am and it got me to Goucher and to Baltimore and the rest is history. Whereas where I taught in Sandtown, um, first off, the school looked like a jail. Uh, there were sort of barred off windows. The air quality was extremely poor within the building. Um, there wasn't heat and air conditioning. Uh, the young people that would come to school were exposed to an enormous amount of trauma, yeah. as well as I just remember on almost every corner surrounding our school were liquor stores. And they were like the, 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 um, the taverns that are open super late and super early in the morning. And so young people would walk by, um, these liquor stores and often folks were, you know, drunk. And, um, I just remember feeling really, uh, like, like there's something traumatizing about just being exposed to, folks that are struggling with substance addiction yeah. at all hours of the day outside of your school. Um, and then just, I also taught a number of young people who much like Freddie Gray were lead paint poisoned. Yeah. Right. So we know that we've had, um, unusually high levels of lead, um, within Gilmore homes, which is where Freddie Gray grew up, which was right next to the school I taught in. Um, and you know, and, and in a lot of our housing stock and we've made tremendous progress. I know the mayor announced the other day that we're, you know, we've reduced lead poisoning, I think by 99% over the past 20 years with green and healthy homes initiative. Yeah. But I still taught a number of young people who were suffering, who had uh, permanent neurological damage because of exposure to lead. And I just remember thinking um, th this really puts the lie to the, um, you know, to, to the American dream that folks can grow up and work hard and then 
get a job and send their kids yeah. to college. I mean, it, it just, the, the schools I taught in, that was not the reality that was presented. And right. last thing I want to say about being a teacher, I also taught in Curtis Bay where we have an enormous incinerator uh, that burns trash. And as a result, we see an unusually high rate of asthma, of cancer, of other diseases because of Bresco um, and the incinerator and the young people I taught in Curtis Bay middle school, but the young people at Ben Franklin led a multi-year campaign to get rid of the incinerator. Um, we ended up passing a bill in the city council that would have effectively dramatically lowered emission, the emission standards, yeah. um, which we passed, but then they sued us and that legislation has been pending. And so that thing is still burning trash and poisoning people. Um, so I just felt like, um, as an educator, knowing the disparities in outcomes and knowing that so much of what we see in our school system is the result of public policies. Right. Um, you know, we, we were a birthplace for redlining in Baltimore in 1915, our city passed the first legislation in the country to legally segregate communities by race, including black folks, white folks, Jewish folks. Um, you know, we have utilized every mechanism known to man to keep people separate and unequal. And I just feel like in a democracy, it is incumbent on folks to participate. And after 2015, after the death of Freddie Gray in police custody, after the uprising, um, I felt compelled to run for office. And I was um, incredibly privileged to join um, a cohort of young, more progressive council people that um, broke through and won in 2016. Like a lot of times young people will run for office and often we lose, or at least we lose on our first go because it's hard and there are entrenched systems that kind of like are, are not looking to change. Yeah. But in 2016, it was really a change year and we won. And so eight of us took seats in the city council. And that was the most turnover we've ever had. Um, and to your question, Rob, about what's the day to day. I mean, the interesting thing is that there is no day to day. Right. <laughs> I feel like every day I get a PhD in some kind of urban issue, whether it's helping someone to get their sign outside of their business, right. Um, which God bless you up or fell's point. Um, <laughs> dealing with that right now. Um, this morning I was in one of my schools, John Rura, that just got a brand new, beautiful building. Um, you know, we're working with the principal over there on some street safety stuff and just, you know, getting to relive my good old days and talk to kids. Um, you know, you, you, you get to legislate. So for me, um, you know, we've been, again, really privileged to pass some bills. One, the first one I passed was the Transparency and Lobbying Act, mm -hmm. which made it so that lobbyists have to register publicly online and tell folks publicly who they're going to lobby and for what. Um, because we know that Baltimore historically has had some deceptive 
um, practices and that, you know, again, if if we think about what democracy should be, it should be for people and not just for people that get paid to influence legislators. Um, We passed a bill to make all the uh, restrooms in Baltimore that are single sex, gender neutral. Um, there, There was a push from our LGBTQ Um, And particularly trans and non-binary communities really saying to us that, you know, there's so much fear and um, harassment that happens outside of restrooms for trans and non-binary people. And this is like a really, I don't know, low hanging fruit, easy to do thing. And so we we did that and I was you know proud to have all my colleagues support it. Um, have done a lot of work on the digital divide. Uh, we were able to pass a bill early in the pandemic to move $3 million from our youth fund into purchasing Chromebooks and internet access for our kids. Um, Cause as we know, school was all virtual. And so for a lot of kids that meant they didn't have uh, if you didn't have a laptop you didn't have and you didn't have internet access, yeah you were out of luck in terms of getting an education. And we know that this is a city where 40% of families um, from a survey in 2018 don't have home wireline internet access, which is absurdly high. And of course, most of those families are black. Most of the areas where folks don't have wireless internet were redlined. Um, so, you know, again, you see the pattern repeats itself. And then finally, the legislation that I'm most proud of that I was able to sponsor was the Healing City Act. Um, and I think we're going to get to talk about that later, but we were able to make Baltimore the first city in America to legislate trauma-informed care. Um, and, you know, so much of my career up until this point when working with children has been about Uh, seeing the impact of trauma and also knowing that healing is possible. And so to get to kind of take some of what I've learned along my career and partner with young people and put that into legislation um, to me was incredibly rewarding and has been the thing that I've kind of been most focused on since we passed the law, but it is, you know, it's anything and everything Um, it is a stressful job. It is, you know, folks are often mad at you on social media and you kind of can't get away from that. Um, but I absolutely love it. Um, you know, I think it is, you know, this city is an amazing place with incredible communities and neighborhoods and businesses and all the rest. And to get to kind of be on the inside and, um, get to do our thing is just a huge privilege for me. So, um, you know, just feel blessed to get to do the work. Well, thank you. That's, that's the, the, one of the more robust, like, yeah, this is what I do. This is the more robust intros. And, um, and, and, and again, you know, I said this before we got started, thank you for the work that you're doing, because like, you know, not everyone is going to do that. Not everyone is more people I think are, going to see see issues, see things that are not equitable, see things that are frankly just wrong and just say, eh, that's someone else's job. But there that isn't for everyone to go after and want to do the work to like, what can I do to maybe improve this? What can I do to learn more about this and maybe shift it? And so, again, like I said, you know, thank you for that. No, I appreciate that, man. And totally. I would just say that, 
you know, there's, there ain't that much that I'm good at. So, you know, I'm reasonably good at this thing. So I'm gonna keep doing it. That, um, well, there you go. <laughs> I can teach and I can legislate. That's, that's about all my skills. So it's almost like chewing gum and walking across. These are the two things I have. This is what I got. You know, I hope it. you like it. <laughs> can't do math. Can't do it. Don't ask me on any kind of tech science thing, but yeah. So speak a little bit more because I think you, you've touched on it in, in, in the, the, that intro piece there. Speak more on uh, like the division, the, the, your vision of a healthy, safe, equitable Baltimore city. And what are some of those top priorities that you may not have touched on yet? Yeah. So, you know, I think for me, Rob, it really is all about the ways in which people are able to participate in their own democracy. Yeah. So like, I think one of the, like when I was a teacher, one of the things I saw and that had a really deep impact on me was just this really deep feeling of disenfranchisement among young people. Like that, that ain't for me like that, that whole politics, that whole government, that whole, you know, all, all that exists over there that that has nothing to do with me or my family. Um, and, and I see that now as a legislator too, because the sort of weird inverse thing that I've experienced is the people who in many ways need government the most are the least likely to yeah. reach out and engage. Whereas the folks who are doing relatively well stay in my inbox and in my voice messages and on <laughs> Facebook and have learned, have been taught that government is there to work for you. Yeah. Um, and that you should have very, very high expectations of what government should do and what its purpose is. And if your expectations are not met, it is within your purview to complain and, you know, raise a ruckus and, and all the rest, which I think is mostly fair. However, I think the challenge is that like one of the communities I represent is O'Donnell Heights and, I very, very rarely, if ever, hear from O'Donnell Heights, right? And yet we've had more murders there than anywhere else in my district. We have, uh, there was a whole redevelopment plan for O'Donnell Heights that was just railroad railroaded and fell off. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it is the community that needs the most and that I hear from the least. And right. so it takes for me being really, really intentional about putting myself physically in O'Donnell Heights, building relationships with community over there and just doing the work of trying to figure it out. So like we, I take a lot of pride in, we were able to get the redevelopment plan back online and we rebuilt it and we yeah. brought community together and folks created a new master plan for what that community should look like. And we're now in the process of trying to get ARPA money, American Rescue Plan Act money, um, and just trying to make it happen and rebuild. You know, it, it's it's World War II cruddy public housing that in many ways is falling apart, that has mold and mildew and all the rest. And so my contention is that people deserve to live in better um, and so we've been working really, really, really hard to try to redevelop that area without displacing community, because that's what happened originally is they lost, we lost like 1100 families 
um, and only built like 120 units of the new housing. So we cannot and will not repeat that pattern. Um, Another community that, you know, again, is big in my district, but that we don't hear from as much is our Latino um, immigrant community, right? So I represent Southeast Baltimore, Greektown, Little Italy, um, Highland Town, Upper Fells Point, Graceland Park, um, Bayview. These are all neighborhoods that really were stabilized by immigrants um, that, that came in in the last 20 or so years that built businesses, that bought homes, that dug in. And so if you go up and down Eastern Avenue near where I live, you know, you will hear 10 different languages being spoken. You will get, you'll, you can get Peruvian chicken or um, the best tacos you've ever had from Tortilla Rio Sinaloa. Um, you, you can get food from Argentina. You can get, you know, you, Di Pasquale's or Matthew's pizza if you're into yeah. Italian. Like, I mean, it, it is beautiful. Like it is to me, that's what a city should look and feel like is just all these different cultures bumping up against each other. And, you know, during the Trump administration, that was like a big part of my job, frankly, was just playing defense and supporting that community because there were ice raids all over the place. We had a dad get picked up outside his nine-year-old kid's house. We did a resolution um, calling on our city agencies to not collaborate with ice. Um, You know, it, it was really awful for a while because it was just this, like the thing that president Trump, I think did really effectively is not only just, um, you know, the, the enforcement itself, but just this fear, constant fear, anxiety, tension, trauma of at any moment now, ICE could come in and bust everybody up. Right. Um, and so we were involved in a sanctuary network um, with some churches and CASA and groups. Um, and, you know, and, and then the last thing again, you know, is for me, Um, some of the work that I get to do on trauma and healing, um, is really, really meaningful. And, you know, I I think Baltimore is a city where everybody sort of knows our challenges, right? Like whether it's homicide rate, whether it's overdose deaths, whether it's, um, you know, historic corruption within our police department, um, or even at city hall, right? Like we, we know, some of the challenges, I think what we have been trying to do since we passed our law in 2020 is how can we bring together some of the healers and some of the folks who are just in this work yeah. um, and begin the process from the inside out, from city government on out of trying to heal our city. Um, so those are some of the priorities that I've been working on. And again, it's just, it is really a, a pleasure to, to, to get to be in this job, even though, you know, some days are, it's like your best and your worst day all in one, all the time. With, with, with the lunch somewhere, maybe in between, it's like, ah, this is a, a inequitable sandwich. I don't know what's happening. What's my day about? That's right. uh, so 
I, I, I remember reading this quote because I, I, I someone was telling me earlier, it's like your research seems a little weird. There's a lot of <laughs> so one of these quotes about um, is a piece of a quote, um, I think, from a, a session that was actually at Hopkins about one of your, your biggest beliefs is community comes first. So tell us about the importance of that philosophy. And I, and I think you, you've you've had that in there in, in your talk thus far. But speak on that the importance of um of community but specifically with within baltimore because i think as you were talking i, I think you kind of touched on the you definitely touched on the dis disenfranchisement the I, I like to look at it as this notion that if something comes off as inauthentic we're not with it as yeah. baltimoreans we don't really support it whenever they rock with it so really tell, tell me about the importance of that philosophy of community comes first for you yeah. I mean, so look, I just think, you know, this is one of those areas where, um, as a city and really as a country right now, I think we've fallen really, really, really short is to give kids in Sandtown or Curtis Bay a reason to believe that their participation in their own democracy matters. Um, you know, when you see liquor stores on every corner, when you see an incinerator that's poisoning your air quality, you know, I, I think it is like a rational and logical uh, response to opt out and to mm -hmm. say, this is not for me. Um, my own philosophy is we all have to be part of the process. Nothing I have done in my five-ish years in city government um, I've, has been done alone. Like everything we do is about how do we build coalition? How, I'm really into this idea of co-governance. So like really trying to um, engage intentionally with the grassroots and with community-based organizations and sort of like, how do we, instead of like me standing up there and writing a piece of legislation and then giving a speech about it and going on with my business, like how does it become our legislation, like how, how do we make sure that the voices of people are actually reflected in the work that we're doing? And like one example of that, that I would give off the top is in the work around the digital divide. Um, you know, I mentioned a bill that I was able to pass, but that was actually really the work of a group called Somos, um, which is a group of students, yeah. mostly out of city college. Um, you should get them on, on your show. They're great. Um, but you know, they were the ones who during the pandemic were like, this is jacked up that half of our peers don't have internet access mm -hmm. and they pushed me to move that money. But then we were able to push Comcast in a really, really big way, right? Yeah. Like there's a city where, you know, we have this 10 year franchise agreement with Comcast, which I believe has not served the city of Baltimore. Well, I think most folks would agree that like our yeah. cable and internet service in this town is suboptimal. Um, and specifically for um, people living in poverty, it's pretty much non-existent. And so Somos, you know, we, we had this like year long campaign to really light a fire under Comcast to say, number one, it's a damn shame that during a pandemic, you're holding our school system ransom for like $600,000 over unpaid internet bills and basically threatening that if y'all don't pay up, we're going to turn the internet off for 
I forget how many families ridiculous, um, which is crazy, right? Like during a pandemic where Comcast is making record profits, everybody's online, everybody's mm-hmm. using their service um, was just absurd. And then two was the speeds at which their internet essentials program, which is yeah. their lowest um, quality and lowest, you know, it costs 10 bucks a month um, were simply insufficient. Yeah. Right. So like kids would be getting on the zoom or the Google classroom and then getting kicked off. And mm-hmm. especially if you had another sibling that was trying to learn simultaneously, or if your parent was trying to do something online, like at um, the speeds that they were operating, they simply couldn't function. And so we really, really, really pushed Comcast and Kimberly and Yashira and Franca Mueller Paz was their teacher and this big coalition like the digital Harbor foundation and project waves, all these groups, we all kind of banded together and said like, yo, it's not good enough. You know, I'm I'm not in a position to cancel your franchise agreement, but I'm going to make it uncomfortable from a PR standpoint for you to treat our city in this way. And a lot of that, sort of went viral. I mean, the young people were in the New York times. Um, they were in wired, they were all over the place and ultimately Comcast raised their speeds. Um, and so to me, that's a, that's an example of how like community-based pressure Mm -hmm. works. And I mean, that changed the game for not just kids in Baltimore, but across the country, like some young people felt the need to push a gigantic, monster of a corporation to be better, um, actually worked. And, you know, we've continued that coalition and are continuing to push and are now working on something around digital navigators and paying young people to teach older adults how to access the internet. Um, but all that to say, I think that like this thing doesn't work. And I think you're, you're the way you framed it was right, which is like folks can feel it. And, you know, the way I think about it is like, if people don't see themselves reflected in the thing, then the thing isn't going to work, right? Like everybody can tell when a politician or someone comes out with some thing and just feels like this is dude's ego on display versus like, this is really commute what community wants. And this is how we're able to build it together. And this is how I see myself in this thing. And this is my role and my lane. And, um, I just don't think, I don't think it works unless we do that. And so that's kind of my philosophy around community comes first is I'm just not effective if I don't have a groundswell and a coalition. And again, like I said, like I ain't that smart. So like, I'm not able to think up stuff. Um, whatever legislation that I'm going to like dream up or cook up, it is going to be a hundred times better if I'm listening to young people, to folks with lived experience, to experts, academics, like we have such a rich, robust community here in Baltimore. I think it's just about putting folks together and bringing folks to the table so that we can create policy that is reflective of the brilliance of our city. Yeah, I, I think, you know, if we're all like under this and we're all working within this and we're all under the banner of, of Baltimore, then this this notion of and, and this application of having someone 
listen and then develop policy, develop like like legislation around. Yeah, these things are a response to what's been said, what what you guys have asked for. That that's where that guilt will comes from. But to your point, if someone's like, yeah, I know what's best for you guys. Here's his ego. It's like, I, I, I don't think anyone ordered this. And uh, you, you, you can go back and look at just certain things that just felt tone deaf or didn't feel like they really connected with what the city is about. And I come from a, a spot of observing and it's like, huh, I didn't think we were a racing city. Huh, and we have like this downtown. This this is just making my day weird. This is not great. <laughs> or, you know, just just certain things that just kind of pop up. And it's like, this is a grab. You're just throwing things on a wall, seeing the spaghetti sticks. And it doesn't really, really work all of the time. But when it comes to something that makes sense, identifying that these are challenges, these are issues that are here. And what can we do to address these issues? And I like that earlier you you touched on that these are components of the narrative that are here, the the violent crime, the the trauma and all of these different things. But people only really talk about that first bullet point and don't really go further from there as to what may be causing what may be driving these things. So I feel like that's a good way to segue because <laughs> I'm a radio guy uh, to segue into this 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 last question before I get to my rapid fire questions. Tell us about the Elijah Cummins Healing City Act and the importance of trauma responsive care in Baltimore. Yeah. Um, so Thanks for asking. So in 2019, um, there was a school shooting uh, right there at Frederick Douglass High School. And it was a school staff member that was shot. It was during school hours. Um, it did not receive the kind of national attention that shootings that happen in predominantly white neighborhoods or white schools receives. But for those young people, and the staff that was there, it was incredibly traumatizing, yeah. right? Like this is broad daylight. I'm trying to learn some math. And now I'm worried about having to duck bullets um, and literally, you know, hide in place. Um, and there wasn't a lot of infrastructure there to like support. I remember talking to one of the teachers afterward and just this feeling of like, did I really just go through that? And where's the support for us and for these children who've now experienced the school shooting? Yeah. Um, like, why aren't we talking about that? And so we held a hearing in the education and youth committee that was really focused on youth voices, youth violence, to try to hear from young people, what we could do to directly impact violence in our city. And at the time, a lot of the discourse among adults was about should school resource officers, SROs have their guns in schools. So like the school board took it up. They like voted on it twice. Like that was like, that was the thing people were talking about. And the theory was like, if a you know good guy has a gun and then the bad guy comes and then, you know, whatever. So that was not what the young people at our hearing wanted to talk about. They were really clear that this is a city that has over-policed Mm -hmm. And every time there's a problem, the first thing we think about is more policing or more guns or more metal detectors or incarceration. And they wanted nothing to do with that discussion. Instead, they pushed us to focus on prevention and what would actually prevent not just this horrible, but really rare shooting that took place in their school, 
Um, but the day-to-day incidents of trauma that they experience, and they went through in a way that only young people can in just a really clear, um, moral, authentic way, just all these, what we would call adverse childhood experiences. So dealing with homelessness, dealing with a parent that's substance addicted, dealing with violence that's in community, dealing with just growing up black in a city that was one of the birthplaces of racial redlining. Um, And then they just named them and pointed to us and said, so what are you going to do about that? Like not just the SROs having guns thing, but all of that, that's what you need. You as our city leaders need to focus on. And me being a teacher, you know, I felt really compelled at this hearing to like, go follow up with those young people. Cause I thought what they said was really profound and really resonated. And so we started talking to them and just thinking about what would a healing approach to violence look like? And what would a trauma informed approach to city government look like? Um, and we did this whole listening tour where we listened in libraries and laundromats and rec centers and classrooms all across the city. And we did a national scan and we looked at what other places were doing. And one of the interesting things that we found was that no city had actually legislated trauma-informed care in any kind of way. And, you know, one of the things, and this is to the previous conversation we were having that was like resonant and loud and clear that folks said to us is, you know, listen, like I'm already doing this work and I want city government to plant a flag. You all need to lead in this way, but you also need to pull all of us in. And I don't want to hear nothing about Philadelphia or New York or DC or like what someone else is doing because Baltimore's own healing is going to come from Baltimore. Like we are the medicine, not some other place, not some expert from Harvard or Princeton or wherever us right here in this city. No one else is coming to save us. We've got to save ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the mayor said that really well, um, you know, in one of his first speeches, but I think that's absolutely right. Um, and, and so we, you know, we took that really seriously around the same time, Congressman Elijah Cummins was leading this work nationally. Um, you know, he had been a real champion. He held the first ever congressional hearing on trauma-informed care. He pulled a bunch of us in Baltimore together and basically, I mean, put his hand on my shoulder quite literally and said, like, listen, I'm not going to be here that much longer. Um, he was dying of cancer at the time, but you all are going to need to carry this forward and you need to pick up the ball and run with it. Um, and so we wanted to name our legislation. He actually died just before we passed the bill. And so we amended it to name it after him. Um, but as we were going through this process, there was just this groundswell of interest and energy and this whole healing city movement that emerged. And so we brought it back. We held a healing city summit. We went to Coppin and Morgan state. Um, to have a youth day and a community day. And then we all marched over to Frederick Douglass, where the young people that had spoken in the hearing spoke again about what it was like to go through this tragedy, but then write a bill and, you know, to the previous conversation to get to participate in legislation and in changing, you know, their city. 
Um, and then mayor Jack Young signed it right there at their high school. Um, thus making Baltimore the first city in the country to legislate trauma informed care. Um, and so the bill does three things. It creates a citywide task force, 36 people, physicians, returning citizens, students, parents, educators, all different types of people to try to come up with strategies, policies, and programs to reduce trauma in Baltimore. Second thing it does is it calls for training of all city agencies um, in trauma-informed care and restorative practices and mindfulness. Um, and what I'm really proud of in our trainings is two things. One is that we're going really, really deep. So it's not just like a one hitter, two hour ACEs 101 kind of thing. Yeah. We're spending a year with each city agency embedded, doing coaching, doing um, group sessions around different topics, understanding race-based trauma and epigenetics and the brain science and what happens to your prefrontal cortex um, and fight or flight. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I'm really proud of is all of the faculty, all of the trainers in our work are Baltimoreans or are Baltimore based organizations. Because again, the theme that we heard loud and clear was we are the medicine. No one's coming to save us. We want to be in the mix. And so we've been able to hire groups like holistic life foundation. We're brothers that grew up in West Baltimore and are like world expert in mindfulness um, Sage Wellness, a black woman owned, um, incredible consultancy that is sort of organizing the work. Just, uh, Dr. Lawrence Brown has been a trainer. Everybody knows Dr. Brown and the black butterfly. Um, Roberta, Roberta's house, Annette March Greer, just one of the world's premier grief counseling centers, um, right here in Baltimore. And so it's really been kind of a labor of love to be able to bring all these groups that are like amazing, yeah. but often unrecognized within their own city. Like Annette, you know, she, she's, she's like world renowned. Like she goes to Atlanta and New York and everybody's like, Oh, that's Roberta's house. But in Baltimore, you know, there's this dynamic of like people often don't get the kind of recognition and love that they deserve um, and so we wanted to really reverse that dynamic and make sure that, um, the people who are, who have been doing this work in community are really centered in how we roll out this legislation. Um, and so that's been, um, really the last like year and a half for me is just staying really engaged. I'm proud to chair the city's trauma informed care task force, but this is one Rob where like, I feel like. I want to really get it right. And yeah. that means, you know, there's some bills that you just like pass and then you're like, all right, now, you know, somebody put a new sign on the bathroom and it can become, you know, gender inclusive. Yeah. This ain't that. This is one where you got to stay with it. You got to make sure the implementation is really, really, really thoughtful and really good. Yeah. Um, and so that's been a lot of my work. Um, but again, it's, it, it is, um, it has been amazing to see, you know, just the way folks have reacted and just the, the, the kind of energy, despite, you know, all the issues that we have as a city and continue to struggle with, um, that I think people have been really receptive to this, to this work. That's, that's great to hear and great to hear that that is carried on. Cause, um, I think a lot of times once 
well, we can move on to something else. It's like, this is our thing now. And, but the fact that that's carried on and I think ultimately it's never something that's immediate. Those like, like the, the type of changes we're looking for, the type of changes that this is, I, I think that can really come from this. Those aren't instantaneous. Those are things that as you've touched on, you, you continually just work at it and aim to just get it right. And it's a living, breathing thing. So I think that's super commendable. And yeah, I'm glad that that is, that's happening because, uh, you know, as I said before, it's usually Baltimore has these problems, hard stop, but it's like, what's happening to really like work through and sort through those problems. And yeah, I, I, I think. Going back to 2015 uh, and, and Freddie Gray and all of that stuff that happened with it, it was one of those things where some people saw it as opportunities to, well, now I can put the attention towards me and I can be a thought leader or whatever, have influence, whatever. And other people saw this. No, nah, we have to do something. This was this was bad. This was bad. And things have to, to shift and things have to change. And that's you know, six years ago. And, you know, some of those changes are in place, at least maybe even the thinking is, is there and that shift is there. So in, as we wrap up here, um, I want to hit you with these next four rapid fire questions and then we'll get into shameless plugs and then we'll wrap. What's shaking my constituency? Rob Lee here. And I want to tell you about something sweet. No, no, not just my sweet voice, and you'll get back to the podcast in a moment, but I want to tell you about one of my presenting sponsors for this month, Waffy Waffle. Do you like dessert? I hope you do. Do you like over-the-top dessert waffles? Well, Waffy is right up your alley. Waffy has yeast-based waffles made with love and topped with everything from syrup to sprinkles, you know, the regular stuff, to ice cream and even cheesecake toppings. Treat yourself to something sweet today. Visit Waffy at www.waffywaffle.com and on Instagram at Waffy Waffle. And don't forget to tell them that Rob Lee sent you. So basically the way these rapid fire questions are, it's kind of like, look, this is the question. This is my answer. I said what I said. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to, I'm going to legislate this with you, Rob. That's pretty much what we're looking for. Okay. So, so don't be yammering on about. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, it's kind of just like, look, you know, if this is your favorite movie, this is your favorite movie. Um, gotcha. So what's your favorite movie? <laughs> oh man. And, and you said that in the, in the opener, <laughs> you had like 40 and, minutes and I, and to I was, prep. Like, thinking about it in my head and couldn't. Um, so that's terrible. So, I would say Batman returns the one with the penguin with Danny De Niro. <laughs> um, I just, there's, there's something beautiful about, about that movie. Um, I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna put that one out there and then I'm gonna, as soon as we stop talking and you like close out, I'm thinking something better and I'll, 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 I'll text you or I'll email you. That's great. I, I did a um, screening actually for that last year with a bunch of guests that were on the show. We did the uh, whole, you know, you run out the theater and I had a bunch of people, like half of them, like guests that were on here. So they're at our age group. It's like, oh, we've never seen that. I was like, how? Really? I was like, how? I was like, this is a masterpiece. <laughs> Michael Keaton and like, oh, come on, man. That was brilliant. <laughs> um, when you're in the office, uh, what are you listening to? Is it music, podcasts, or are you just in like silence? You're like, look, I just need to concentrate. What are you, what are you listening to? 
Yeah. So I would say like, I'm a big audiobook kind of guy. Okay. Um, I mean, it, it, like the way I read, the way I consume information is like, I got my audible and I try to do three or four books a month. Yeah. Um, so like when I go to bed, I got my audio book going when I'm walking around, if I'm not on calls, I got my audio book going. Um, that, that's my thing is, uh, audio books. Um, I, I was a kid who loved to get read, read to yeah. by my parents when I was, you know, little, and I think there's something nostalgic and yeah, I just love it. I'm actually in the same page, uh, same spot. Uh, in that conversation I was describing earlier in the uh, the 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 paper stores, like yeah, I have all these books here. I'm a really voracious reader. I was like, I am a very voracious ebook listener, and yeah. I, I've been on this um, recent. Um, I, I've been doing the Robert Greene stuff, but also the mm -hmm. most recent one has been. Um, be water, my friend, the, um, Shannon Lee book about, um, Bruce Lee's philosophy on be water. Hmm. And that's been, so at the gym walking, when I'm going to sleep, it's like, that's on the entire time. And that's where I consume it. Fascinating. What is the last show that you've binged? Okay. Uh, so we, we watched, uh, dope sick, okay. um, which was Michael excellent. <laughs> um, so, you know, not, not if you're in the mood for giggles, that is not the one. Um, but, uh, talks about the opioid crisis and the Sackler family, um, Purdue pharma and just the, um, you know, the way that, uh, particularly Appalachian America was just devastated yeah. by this thing and how, you know, just layers and layers of manipulation and doctors and, farmer reps and just everyone kind of caught up in this thing. And it, I don't know, it's resonant to me. Um, you know, I think a lot about addiction. It's in my family. It's in most of our family. My wife's a psychiatrist. Um, she treats a lot of people struggling with substance use, um, but really, really powerful, um, excellent TV. That's great. Last thing I got. Um, what is your motto? What is like this? These are the things that you stick with, whether it be from a professional, personal, however you want to frame it. But what is your model that you apply to how you operate and navigate in this world? Um, yeah. So, you know, in addition to getting to do the work I do, um, the other thing I'm really blessed to have just an amazing family. Yeah. Uh, so I got two um, cute kids who, uh, one of them is four. And so she's extra special, um, doing, doing her four major thing. I mean, she's <laughs> like a whole, whole mood and attitude all of her own, but brilliant and sassy and, you know, funny. Um, I got an amazing wife who is, like I said, like I mentioned, a physician in Cherry Hill, uh, who you now keeps me sane and keeps a lot of her patients sane. Um, and I got a son who's one and he's like a funny little guy. He just scoots around. He can't <laughs> quite walk yet. Um, so yeah, I think for me, you know, in addition to community comes first and just the work that, you know, I've been fortunate to be able to do, I think it's, trying to really keep integrity as a father, as a husband, um, you know, as, as someone who you know, loves and values my family and, you know, doesn't always get the balance quite right. I think when you're in like public life, it's tricky. There's a lot of like pull 
um, in different ways. But um, I think uh, valuing family and, and, and those relationships is, is really important to me. So there you have it. Thank you. Um, so I want to invite you to, um, plug anything that you got website or anything you want people to kind of check out and we'll wrap up on that. And I want to thank you again for coming on to this podcast. This has been great. I feel actually like I was somewhat qualified to have this conversation now. <laughs> no, nah, this is great, man. Yeah. No, nah, I appreciate, uh, thank you. <laughs> appreciate the, the platform. It's you're doing great work. Um, yeah. So I think my website is zekecohen.com. Folks who check it out. I'd also Google healing city, Baltimore, um, and, you know, follow along some of the work that we've been doing on Twitter and so on. Um, and yeah, appreciate, appreciate you having me on, man. This was, this was a treat. Totally. Thank you so much. So for council member Zeke Cohen, I am Rob Lee saying there is community leadership in and around Baltimore. Just got to look for it.